greatness here on YouTube with audio on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever good podcasts are sold. Hey, everybody. As you can see, I am joined again this week by Jen Kiaba. Hey, Jen. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> and Jen, of course, if you guys have not seen our earlier episodes, we, we do have some earlier podcasting greatness that you guys should check out where Jen and I had some really, I thought, and apparently the audience thought, we had some pretty interesting conversation. And so she and I are both doing, a year apart, we are both doing the same program of, of university education at the University of Salford in the UK. We are doing an online program of the um, psychology of coercive control. And this has been a mind-bending, head-exploding, uh, you know, pressure, pressurizing and pressure-releasing and every other thing you can experience, uh, kind, of, kind of experience for me. And I've shared a lot of that with you guys. And Jen and I have been commiserating before the show on because on, I'm, I'm writing my final thesis right now. She's just finished her first trimester of work, which is the initial essays and work that you do getting into the field in the first place and learning about what they call the itology of coercive control, the, the sort of the structure and, and where it comes from and the anatomy of it and the, and the basis of it. So the first trimester is a real ice water dip in a lot of theory and a lot of like, whoa. And I honestly, if I hadn't been spending years doing what I do, learning what I've learned, knowing, you know, teaching myself all the stuff I've had to learn. And if I hadn't had that, I honestly don't know if I would have survived the first trimester because that grounding at least was a base, a bedrock on which I could build the rest of the things I did not know anything about. Jen has had her own experience with this. Now, Jen, you also, for our audience, you are an ex-Mooney. Is that right? Yeah. Um, interestingly, and and I think we could dive into this amongst the other things that we want to talk about. I yeah. really hate it when people call me like an ex-member or uh. an ex-Mooney. <laughs> and, and, and hats off to Dr. Jan Yulalich and Carla McLaren, because um, for my research proposal. I was rereading their book, Escaping Utopia, highly recommended to yes. anybody who's second generation or multi-generation. And like in their intro, they talk about how we hate being called like second generation members and like ex-scientologists. Maybe, maybe you identify with that a little bit more, but for me, I was like, I never really identified strongly as a Mooney because I didn't have this choice. And I, my story is one very much a struggle around identity. So like, even as you say it, I'm like, yes, it's true. And I just like, Ugh. I have this like shudder of like, no, don't describe me that way. But right. yes, yes, I'm an ex Mooney. <laughs> well, maybe uh, should we say you used to participate in the uh, activity called the Unification Church? I just tend to say that I was born and raised in the Unification Church and I left Perfect. at 21, you know, and I, I think that that's an easier way to sum it up without ascribing membership. And I think that a lot of people who have left who were born and raised who didn't get into like leadership positions and things like that probably would align more with something like that than being called an ex-Mooney. However, I will say on social media and things like that, I use the ex-Mooney hashtag and I'll describe myself that way. It's just deep down, it's not a personal preference. <laughs> Understood. Totally. And thanks for clarifying that because I, I, I wasn't aware. 
But um, anytime. I, uh, I, I, we, the struggle is real. Learning is hard. Oh, yes. <laughs> Writing is hard. <laughs> Yes. What, what's yes. been your experience so far with this thing? Do you want to talk about it? Sure. Yeah. I, in one sense, I've loved it. And in the another sense, it feels like, um, so when I was a sophomore in high school, I was on track and we would do weight training as part of our general training. And the gal that I was partnered with was uh, way more muscular than me. She was lifting at a much higher level than I was. And she, we were each given like our own programs to follow, but she would encourage me to follow her program. And I was like 110 pounds and super skinny and she was buff. So you can imagine that led to some injuries. Right. And I kind of feel like from a critical thinking perspective, I'm like back in that weight room, trying to follow somebody else's lifting regimen, because, um, as, as somebody who's been out over a decade, I've certainly tried to teach myself critical thinking and critical analysis, but I find those old path neural pathways being tapped all the time. As I like read a journal article, it's, I have to like really sit down with like a piece of paper and like write thoughts in the margins and stuff to make sure that the, you know, swallow this thing whole doesn't take over because that is so much part of our old training. So in that sense, it's really good. But in another sense, it's also quite exhausting. Yeah, big time. Uh, did you have any kind of because I, because I, I've, I'm finding as in talking to you that there are whole swaths of this, of the Unification Church experience that I'm just not aware of or or don't know about. So if I ask silly questions, it's only for that reason. But I, did was there any effort on the part of um, child raising, you know, Unification members or Moonies, or whatever, to uh, is there any sort of um, here's how you learn, here's how to learn things, here's how you should go about education, any, anything, even, even if it's just everything from moon is perfect and everybody else is full of shit and that's the only thing you need to learn, or I is there any kind of methodology to it? I don't think that moon had a methodology in the way that Hubbard did. Mm. Um, I do think that there are texts where he talks about the best way to learn, but he'd also talk about moon would talk about like the best way to learn would be out in nature, see the animals fucking. And that's how you learn about love kind of stuff, you know, and you're like, um, so there wasn't a, a strong structure that I experienced. And I also found that there were different levels of expectation. So Moon's children all went to Harvard. A lot of the Korean leaders, children went to top tier Ivy schools. And the rest of us were just sort of SOL in terms of our education. And I think that there was this sort of sense that secular education didn't matter. I don't know that it was neglected for everybody. And I, I don't want to speak for all SGAs uh, from the Unification Church because part of my thesis is there's no homogenous experience within the Unification Church, especially within the second generation. Um, but... I, I went to several church schools. I tried out a couple of church schools as I was trying to figure out education as a child. Um, and my experience in all of them was that they were very poorly structured. They were not accredited usually. And so it left me with this feeling that education was not that important. Um, again, unless you were part of like the, the leadership cohort. 
Interesting. That is interesting. I, um, uh, of course, Scientology has its whole study tech thing, but I was, um, but I was, yeah, I was really curious where you were coming at this from. So, edu- so you came into this, or you got through school with the idea that it really wasn't that big of a deal, or not that important as a subject matter. In- so, I say that as a as a sort of like broad experience. Mm. My personal family was a little bit weird in that. So a lot of people joined the Unification Church in the 70s and gave up their education. There were very few people who uh, continued through college. It was very much encouraged for people to drop out. So both of my parents did drop out when they joined the church in the early 70s. However, both of my parents were rarities in that they finished their education within the church. My mother got her undergrad at University of Hawaii right before I was born. My father went all the way to getting his PhD. And so that was a very different perspective for me. My father is a noted scholar in international relations with North Korea. And there are a number of scholars in the Unification Church, most of whom went through the Unification Church Theological Seminary in Barrytown, New York. So having scholars was important to Moon to sort of further the Moon agenda But that doesn't necessarily mean that the second generation as a whole, I think, were supported in education. There was very much an expectation in my family that I personally got straight A's. It wasn't applied to my four other siblings, um, but I was supposed to set the example. And I think that my mother wanted me to get a full ride to something like Stamford, you know, she would sort of try to get us to say these mantras in the car and stuff when we were driving. <laughs> and uh, she would joke around that she wanted me to be a rocket scientist. So my my family of origin experience, I think is very different from like the sort of overall moon experience. But I would still say that the attention paid to my education was still very minimal. I have no memories of my parents helping me with projects or homework. I was just sort of left on my own. I was like this feral child in the public education system. And I changed schools every year, sometimes multiple times a year. So there was, my trajectory was all over the place. I think that if my parents had really cared more about our education as children, there might have been more concerned about the fact that they were pulling us out of school in the middle of the year or like every year we were going to a new school. So that I just share that to say that like, it's, it's a super complicated thing to try to sum up how an organization as vast as the Unification Church looked at education because it was applied so differently in so many different contexts. So I feel like I still came in kind of unprepared, despite the fact that I had two parents who were anomalies in the church who both had college educations. Well, and that's so interesting because um, structurally speaking, as you mentioned, that the the slant or the thrust of it seems to be, well, it's good so long as that education is used to forward or advance the agenda. Well, you could fill in anything with that. Anything that you do. I was interested in theater and the arts. Okay, fine. You have to become the most famous actress in the world so that you can right. further the moon agenda. You know, right. that was, that, that was the, if I, at eight years old, when I was in a play, that's basically what my mom told me, like, okay, you have to save the entertainment industry from Satan then. But I go. just wanted to right. be part of the chorus in, in Annie, you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, it's gotta be dialed up to 11. 
everything has yes. to get dialed up to 11, right? And, and I, you know, and of course, it's not a whole lot different in Scientology in terms of that, that sort of thing. But it's interesting how I come from a place where education was structured as part of the control mechanism. Where, where that was a component of the coercive control was the, was the very model of how education is done in Scientology. I mean, I've already done mm -hmm. videos breaking down study tech. We don't have to go there. But it's just the, the emphasis on, you know, it, it appears on the surface. And I can sit here and say right now as I sit here that I did have benefits from and can point directly to my Scientology education and say, you know, the, the methods and the techniques of, of that education, not the content. I'm not talking about I benefited from reading Dianetics. I'm saying I benefited from having to look up every single word I didn't understand in Dianetics. Mm -hmm. Now, that's, that's, that can be itself traumatizing. And I've, and I've actually related experiences growing up that were traumatizing where I was, where, you know, you couldn't get out of the dictionary until you understood all of it and, blah, 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 and all this. Again, it gets dialed up to 11. But after years and years and years of this, and then walking away from it and de-traumatizing, I can look back and now point to, well, you know, having my nose in a grammar book all the time, having my nose in a dictionary all the time, wasn't always just about Hubbard. You know, I mm -hmm. can speak intelligently about grammar and communication now, and I, and I do. And, and, and so that benefited my writing ability and my, and my skill set. But of course, as I'm always want to say, I didn't have to do Scientology to get all that. I could have just gone and gotten my yeah. English degree like I was going to do in the first place. <laughs> and then I would have gotten all that. You see what I mean? So it's not it's yeah. not like, oh, only Scientology could have delivered this to me. But because they're so extensive and emphatic about about the structure of communication and the words and, and the meaning of words, you do tend to get a little bit more of of a of a of a, of a base of understanding of stuff, uh, of your language at least, as a Scientologist. Mm -hmm. Now the funny thing is, then there's all these curves entered into it, with the methods that are used in study in Scientology to fuck you over, and and you know to be blunt, right? And like like for example, there's a whole process in Scientology called false data stripping. It's an actual procedure. You sit down with somebody and I'm, I'm now going to strip you of your false data on this area, right? You're having trouble. You can't think with this area. It doesn't make sense. You can't learn L. Ron Hubbard on this because you're impeded by earlier education you've had that is running up against what Hubbard's trying to teach you. So we're going to do this process to strip you of that bad earlier education. Bad meaning it disagrees with L. Ron Hubbard. So you tend to get mm -hmm. this, you know, so that you get sounds, all that crazy stuff too. It, it sounds a little bit like uh, in, in Nixium where what they had what the EMs or something. Yeah, like, similar. And they would related. have to almost kind of yeah yeah it, it sounds like there was some um borrowing there from scientology <laughs> yes keith uh ranieri uh keith ranieri was uh was definitely plagiarizing hubbard's work no question about it and hubbard of course is plagiarizing mm -hmm. you know 20 other people so it's just this chain of 
of kind of nonsense with that. But mm -hmm. it, it, but just speaking to this in terms of our current educational efforts and and uh, and, and slugfests of trying to get through this this university program. Um, it's interesting to me how lots of different backgrounds, I mean, this year and, and last, um, working with my cohort, working with the people that I was in my class with, right, and talking with them and then talking with you about this year, how certain struggles are real no matter what your background was or what you're bringing to the program. I mean, I can write, but... You know, academic writing is not something I'm I'm deeply steeped in, and apparently, you know, you mentioned you too, and that doesn't just come to you. You got to figure that out. And I'm and I I mm -hmm. I kind of thought it was part of the four year experience, and since I skipped the line, I was I was assigning those difficulties to my lack of the four year thing, and I just grit my teeth and you know sunk my boots in. And, okay, well I got to figure this out because I got to get through this, you know, and so I just kind of figured I was catching up, but now maybe not. Maybe that's not the case. And it's just kind of a struggle no matter where you're coming from on this thing. Yeah. I mean, as we were talking about before the show, what's really interesting is it seems as though, again, my cohort for this past trimester and, and maybe in, in your year, it's similar. There are people from cult backgrounds and there's a lot of people who have come out of uh, domestic violence situations that are now doing these studies and, and and many of the people that I've talked to who have uh, the domestic violence background, they're, you know, women who come out of these battering relationships who have then gone into working with victims as well. And so this master's program is, is adding to their store of knowledge, but uh, based on the WhatsApp chat that <laughs> our, our class is in, it does seem like the struggle is real universally. Um, <laughs> But it's interesting because, you know, I know SGAs from the Unification Church, second generation adults uh, who have left, who have gone on to do, you know, uh, finance, who have either master's degrees, PhDs, whatever. Um, and so their personal histories, maybe their family structures allowed for that kind of education and maybe without that same struggle. And so this is why I kind of come back to in my personal writing. And again, the thing that I want to explore from a research standpoint is sort of the the uh, the non-homogenous experience of SGAs, because my experience is totally different than somebody else's. You know, somebody. So, for example, um, my friend Ren, she's really active on social media, and she just participated in it's one of these TikTok trends. Um, and I'm, I'm not so much on TikTok or up on the cool stuff, but there's this trend that was like, you were raised by Karen. I was raised by dot, dot, dot. And she was like, I was raised by a cult. And so she talks about how like the cult influenced her upbringing. And we were chatting about it the other day. And she's like, I truly feel like I was raised by an institution, not just parents, because she at a very young age was sent to what's called the GOP program. And I don't know what it stands for. Something of peace, probably, because Moon was all about of peace. But it was basically a boarding school in Korea. I was supposed to go to it too at 11. And you were going to spend... Uh, at least your middle school years, living in a dorm, in a boarding school, very much an institutional kind of setting. And then she went to the same high school that I went to, which was a four-year boarding school in Bridgeport. And so her experience with education, very different than mine. 
despite the fact that I went to 12 different schools before graduating high school at 16, I probably got a better education than her because I was at least exposed to public school curriculums for the most part, except for when my parents homeschooled me and like left me alone with encyclopedias. That was my curriculum, which sounds a little bit like your dictionary experience just without structure. <laughs> um, and then there are people that like their parents seemed to very much value education. And like, I know of people who are still in the church, they're second gen and they've got PhDs. So like, again, it's just, it blows my mind. Maybe they would have come into this program and have been fine. And like, this is a breeze, but <laughs> I doubt it. On, well, <laughs> yeah, well, and, and I, here's, I guess, and, well, here's one thing we're not seeing right now, or even maybe even acknowledging a little bit is just because we, we sort of assume, well, they got masters, they got PhDs. So therefore their, their path was just as smooth or it was totally smooth, whereas we're getting mm -hmm. masters and we're struggling like crazy. Well, they could have struggled like crazy, too, for their That's finance true. degrees or doctorates right. or whatever, too. It makes yeah. me wonder. Here's the research question that pops into my mind is what is pressure? How do we create our own pressures versus social pressures? And how do we keep mm -hmm. those pressures going that are socially created after we left the social situation and we're not mm. no, in that social echo chamber bubble world anymore. And yet we still maintain those thought patterns because they're neural pathways, right? So that's how it works. And mm -hmm. how much does that affect or how long does it take on average for people out of, out, you know, in cult versus out cult to experience the pressures of, you know, high mm -hmm. intensity environments like graduate programs. These are, you know, every grad student I've ever talked to across the boards has told me, oh, dude, oh, dude, I hear you. I get it, you know, and you evolve various coping strategies and various things you're going to do. I'm going to take breaks. I'm going to end off a certain time each day. I'm going to get sleep. I'm not going to kill myself over this. And then I and then I, I, I literally have put this together. And then a couple of days ago, I tweeted out something and somebody came back with me of, oh yeah, do this and this and this and this and this. And I was like, oh yeah, that's all the stuff I already figured out how to do. And he, you know, and he got through his grad program 10 years ago. Right. So it's just, it's kind of like, there's also just the sameness of the, um, of the pressures of the experiences. But I, but my research question very much would be along the lines of is a, is a, is an ex cult group or, or maybe I should more specifically uh, accurately say, are survivors of coercive control, coercive environments in a headspace where life actually is more difficult or does it just seem that way and how would that manifest? You know, there's a lot of different directions you could go with that. Yeah, I would say that my experience is, is that especially very soon after I, I got out of the group, the way that I processed everything was it's dire, you know, like mm -hmm. my, I just went into full trauma mode around everything. And so I can totally see how people who have come out of these coercive environments, especially if it's somewhat recent trauma, or they haven't had the support that they need from like a therapy standpoint to learn to deescalate some of those mental processes, I could definitely see it being a, a way more intense experience. But again, everybody's different. I don't exactly. know. Exactly. 
Exactly. Well, yeah. one thing that I did want to talk about in terms of, you know, the pressures and the difficulties and the and the figuring out how to write and the, and the statistics and the, and the this is and the that's. I mean, these, these are all the pressures of a graduate program, regardless of what background you're coming from. But I wanted to also start, you know, plug a little bit about the positives of what this does to me when I get into a, liter a literature headspace. And I was <laughs> curious if you experienced this, too, because. I, you know, just the way we're talking right now, I mean, we're both like kind of fresh off of writing these, you know, deep academic papers where we have to get into, ugh, God, this writing, I just, ugh. Um, do you find yourself like thinking differently when you start doing lit reviews and diving into the literature and the paperwork and the, and the thinking critically and having to structure arguments and stuff like that do you i mean it's for me it's not just when i'm sitting writing my whole life i start thinking differently when i'm in this kind of headspace do, do you experience that um i would say that it predates the master's program because i was so like nerdy i was reading people's phds before getting into this program of course <laughs> and like blogging about them so uh the i think that the headspace thing it, it was a transition pre-program into now and so uh, i think that my thinking has definitely changed but it's also been refined a little bit um one of the things that i find is just that i get really angry um, when I do this reading in, in that, um, and you and I've talked about this a little bit before, you know, it's, it's so funny coming out of these cultic situations where it's like totalist thinking it's black and white. And then you come out and it's like, there are these scholars debating about your experience and whether it was legitimate or not. And it's very black and white kind of way. And that infuriates me. It really does. And so, uh, that's, um, I think that luckily the program and the reading and the critical thinking have sort of given me the skills to, to again, not just take somebody's word for it as like, oh, well, they're a PhD, they must know. But I've found myself as I've been reading asking questions my internal monologue will like kick in and be like yeah but what about x y and z whereas i think a few even a few years ago i would have had a really really hard time getting out of the rut of this is a person in a position of authority therefore i have to listen to what they say that's that's been one of the remaining vestiges of cult life that I hope I'm finally throwing off and and allowing my own internal compass and education to guide my thinking better. Yeah, big time, big time. Ah, it's so relate. I I have a I have a, a a couple different things happen to me when I start really engaging with the literature and thinking more more deeply with these with these kind of topics. And this is and and by these topics, I mean the interesting thing about doing literature reviews and real research, like we're talking about like, you know, you're diving into stuff, you're going through statistics, you're going through data, you're not just reading people's conclusions and thinking you know something. It's it's really diving into all of it, and and that's what academia demands of you, and that's that's basically the essence of it as I see it, and I love it, I love it, I love learning stuff, and I love thinking and engaging deeply with material, but it really messes with 
my ideology and my biases <laughs> because oh. what ends up happening is is two things i have experienced the same degree of rage and anger and upset over bad or poor research or or opinion based research especially from you know as i've gone on at, at length about with the new religious movement scholarship and these people who you know kind of ivory tower our experiences as though they don't matter or don't or never even happened. And you're just kind of like, mm -hmm. whoa, dude, who the hell are you to be saying that? And then you dive in and you find out they really don't know anything about what they're talking about. So you go, okay, fine. I'm, I'm in that space right now. <laughs> yeah, totally get that. Oh, my God. So uh, it's, believe me, so am I. Um, and, and I had engaged my earlier engagement with academia had been that, and I had done some videos breaking down their academic work and I was not yet trained in anything. I didn't know shit about academia. So, so I would laugh at the fact that they would cite themselves and stuff like that. Well, there's actually nothing wrong with that, but I didn't understand how, how all that stuff worked. So some of my criticism was off, but for the most part, I think I still nailed it even on review of looking back on it now but i but where i was going with this is is i get into a couple of different kind of places i get into this like infuriated mad and academically so like i can actually rigorously challenge their entire argument it's not just i don't like this guy because he disagrees with me it's like i'm looking at their arguments i'm looking at what they write i'm going no that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong and i can actually take this guy apart with this and it's not about mm -hmm. the personality it's about the work and that and and that's a good that's a good place to get to um when you're when you're doing this kind of thing so and that's that's kind of where i'm going is i'm able to i i, I start thinking differently i stop i stop thinking about personalities and i start thinking about the work and it mm -hmm. feels more substantive it feels more like i'm engaging with deeper ideas and it's not just the war of celebrity or or personalities or or opinions right which is what mm -hmm. celebrity media is about and seems to be what a lot of mainstream media is about they, they don't engage deeply with with stuff it's all very surface level stuff so there's that angle to it. But the other thing that for me emotionally is much more important to me is that coming from a totalist environment where it is all or nothing, it's, it's L. Ron Hubbard or the highway, the thing that's, that broad study does for me is it re, it's, the, it's the antidote to, to totalist thinking. Because I'm presented mm -hmm. with so many different conflicting points of view that are well argued. Yeah, absolutely. Even if, I mean, bad scholarship is not well argued, and that's the easiest stuff to, to, to tromp on. But, but good scholarship exists in, in spades. There's plenty of it across mm -hmm. lots and lots of topics. And by engaging yeah. with that, I find myself realizing that it's harder to hold on to totalist thinking it's harder to yeah. to to stay stuck in a silo oh absolutely like uh i don't know if this shows up backwards or not based no, on the camera wars in historical perspective yeah it's an informed book right this is dr eileen barker's uh charity right she was paid by the moonies to to do studies on the moonies um and so it's really tempting for me to want to 
throw away all of her scholarship, but I'm specifically exposing myself to this work. I've got a number of these books on my Amazon wish list because of the exact thing that you're talking about. I don't think that their scholarship is sloppy, but it's a completely different perspective. You know, you've got the sociological perspective versus the, like the clinical psychological perspective and they don't mesh very easily. I know that Dr. Yanya Lalich is a sociologist. And so she has, um, much more of a, a, a familiar language with like the new religious movement scholars to be able to say, well, that's wrong. And this is wrong. And so, yeah, I, I think that it's really interesting what you're doing, what I'm trying to do in terms of, of taking these different opinions in and sifting through the data, as it were, is such a wonderful antidote to that totalist thinking that we grew up with, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, big time. Yeah, like- and 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 it, and then you have to write papers. So it really demands that you actually think with the data and, and really mm-hmm. critically engage with it if you're going to write good stuff. I mean, I've yeah. seen some sample work that was shit. So I so it's not that everybody is guaranteed to do this. And that's one of the other things that I learned from this process is is I, is you learn that people who have letters after their name deserve to be listened to. They deserve to be taken seriously. However, <laughs> ha, ha, however, that doesn't mean they deserve to be agreed with. Mm, immediately yes you see Uh, what i'm saying in other words if you have some if you can if what that tells me now it used to tell me a very different thing it used Uh to tell me oh this is an authority i should just listen to this person right right now it's yes i should listen to this person because i can appreciate the amount of work they did to get those letters after their name so i understand that it was a discipline it was an effort mm-hmm. they made. They, they're, you know, unless they paid somebody else to write their shit, you know, they, they, they did do some work, and I can, and I can appreciate right. that they were able to do that work. Now, show me what you got. And I think it's really interesting because I think what's so important is to remember what you're talking about is like academic scholarship. You're not talking about main stream media where like Dr. Oz, for example, is this talking head, please like, don't listen to what that man has to say. (laughs) I don't care how many letters he has after his name. You know what I mean? Um, And so it, it is very, but there are also academic papers out there that are highly problematic with um, incorrect data where the studies have not been appropriately structured. I mean, the whole idea about autism being caused by vaccines, that was a paper that was published yep. by people with letters after their names. It has since been refuted, but I think that it is important to understand that uh just because somebody has letters behind their name does not mean that they are a BL and all authority, even if they've conducted research. You can read what they have to say. Um, but the whole point of peer review process is to have other people be like, well, let me point out some holes in your data, you know? And, and but, and, that, but and, yeah, and that, and the, the appreciation of that process is why we now don't have to go totalist to the doctors or the master's Mm -hmm. specialists is because we understand Mm -hmm. that peer review and, you know, here's a thing. Oh yeah. Well, here's another thing. Oh, well, here's some more thing on that. Oh yeah. Well, what about this? Like we now understand that the conflict inherent in that process is what will move the ball down the road. Mm 
that it's not about mm -hmm. I wrote, I did some research, I wrote a paper, and that's all there is to say about it. We now know mm -hmm. that that's not how any of this works, and it never has worked that way. And the only people who say it works mm -hmm. that way are cult leaders, right? Or people who, uh, right. you know, or, or people with an agenda, right, who are trying to get one over on you. It's my way or the highway kind of black and white totalist thinking. So, so we know governments. Or like a know, major personality disorder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so you can recognize that. You can see that. I get. I, I feel like we get a, a a more grounded and deeper appreciation for these principles by doing the mm -hmm. education, and it's and mm -hmm. it and it does make it stand out so much more when you when you do something like this. You put yourself through this mill, and you feel like grist. Every other day. I mean, it's really bad that you, you put yourself through this process. And I and I honestly am very happy that I have done this, even though I almost broke my finger one time punching the wall. I was so frustrated. I was I have been driven to the lengths of really bad places doing this program. I mean, I have I have dealt with some trauma. I have dealt with some Scientology bullshit. I have dealt with pressure. I, you know, all kinds of crap that I had to sort of figure my way through. And, um, and as I have said before, you know, uh, just to just to put the plug in here, because I, I, I always feel bad when I say stuff like that, um, that, you know, I've also felt like, you know, my professor has, has dragged me through the mud a couple times too, helping me out of that and lifting me up out of that when I was at my worst. He, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, my advisors have been very, very helpful to me this year. But, but that whole process gives you this appreciation for at the other end, you go, holy shit, this actually means something. This scholarship mm -hmm. is important. This research is important. This whole process actually matters. And it makes yeah. those Dr. Oz's actually stand out as even bigger problems than they were before I did this program, because we now know that the word doctor really should mean something. And when somebody yeah. corrupts it and taints it and 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 makes it out as the as a horrible thing by by misusing it and and screwing around with it, you actually have even more anger towards them and their and their immorality. You know, and that's and mm -hmm. that's that's Dr. Phil, Mr. Phil, that's Dr. Oz, that's these, you know, these some of these pseudoscientific quackeries that Oprah's and, and others have have kind of foisted off on us. So um, so I so I so I feel like I've gained an even more appreciation for that. But I feel I can um, I'm happy that I feel like I can talk a little bit more. Certainly, and it's not just, oh, I just don't like that guy. Right. Oh, I right. just don't like him. You know, I have more to say than I just don't like him. <laughs> and that education kind of gives you that, you know. I think one of the, the difficulties is that um, when you understand a subject matter to a, a very nuanced level, you don't become somebody that the media wants to come to for that soundbite. Yeah. And so I think that that's a, a really big societal problem that we have. It's a you know, mainstream media problem that we have on both sides or across the spectrum, because it's, again, it's not black and white. Um, there are, there are those people that are the go-tos that are going to say something that then, you know, the newspapers and, you know, the CNNs and the Fox News and the New York Times and all of them can then take the headline that's really pithy and clickable 
then you like you get in and you're like well wait a minute that's not exactly what this is saying and like all of these things are such a big problem but you know for people like you and me like if they called us up to speak to something my answers are so circuitous that I would probably be a horrible person to have on TV because I'd be like well it depends there's no uh, homogenous experience you know I mean like come on um but it's I, I do feel like it is such an important thing. And unfortunately, uh, the way that our culture is training people is in the opposite direction. It's too much more totalism. Yeah, exactly. Know? I'm very it's, worried it's, about that. It's very, yeah. And it's very emotional totalism too, you know? And so like when somebody says, I feel like I need to do more of my own research on the vaccine, if they were going to sit down and write a 5,000 word essay citing various sources and say, well, this study says this, but then this peer reviewed study over here has some concerns. I'd be like, rock on with your bad self. But I mean, what it, what people, it's coded for, I really just want to listen to my totalistic viewpoint over here a little bit more. Um, But otherwise I would say, yeah, do your own research. It's, It's such an empowering experience, but again, the training of our society is not that, and it is not empowering people to think critically about things. Exactly. Exactly. And that's a, and that's a, something we've really got to solve. That's a problem we got to solve. And it's a lot, and a lot of people have been working on that problem for a long time. So it's not, it's not that nothing's being done about this, but um, Mm -hmm. we have a big society with a lot of moving parts and trying to get heard in this, in this, you know, media frenzy, nonsensical culture we live in now with the internet is very, very hard. You know, you can have very sensible messages. You can put a podcast together with lots of sensible speaking going on in it. <laughs> and, you know, you're only going to get so many people who are going to hear you or listen to you or, yeah. or forward your message. So you got to do the best you can and, and hope for the best. But it is really, a, my point is, it's a group effort. It's going to take a lot of us doing this, a lot, a lot, a lot of us doing this to turn this tide. And and I want to say to reveal more of my nerd demo, I've been reading uh, Anthony Trollope's The Way That We Live Now. I'm, I'm rereading it because now that I'm done with my my term, this is like my recreational reading. It's like 600 pages of a fictionalized story taking place in the 1870s in Britain. And it's like if you were reading this in tw- in 2016, you know, so pre like January 6th and all that, you'd be like, is this a 19th century Trump? Because because he's this like um, the the main character Melmont. He is this like bombastic uh, merchant who has this very shady past. Who nobody really knows like where he got his money from. If he really is as rich as he says that he is, and he starts courting. Um, all of these people in the aristocracy and then he decides that he's going to run for parliament and it's this story of not just this guy but how society is structured in such a way that it's it's very left and right um and everybody is sort of like losing their moral compass in order to fawn over this man it's it's very much this trump character and it's so fascinating to be reading right now because it makes me realize that like this is something that's been going on for a very long time yes you know the author would be 
probably like, yeah, nothing's new here. You just have new technology, you know? So they have the advent of, of the railroad and the telegraph. And this is like contributing to the downfall of society amongst the fact that like the, the mercantile class has, you know, risen uh, to take over power from the aristocracy and, they're, you know, trying to introduce radical democracy into this society. And so it's it's a little bit of a flip of what we're experiencing. But at the same time, I, th- I think that somebody who read this, if you could get through, it's very prosy, um, we would all recognize our own society within it. And so again, the point is, is not to nerd out about 19th century literature, but is to say that this is a, this is a human problem that we've had for a very, very long time. And, um, you know, the, 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 in the plot of this book, there's even, you know, the two newspapers taking sides about the candidacy of this guy. And one is like, he is going to be the savior of England. And the other is like, he is a devil, you know, and it just reminds me of, you know, like the Joe Biden thing, right? Yeah. Like, let's not just talk about Trump, but how Joe Biden was portrayed in the media by various sides, you know? And so it's, uh, it, it, <laughs> It just makes me think about, we ask ourselves, we navel gaze as a society, like, how did we get here? Well, we've been here for a really, really long time. It predates us. You know, we're following in the footsteps of something that's existed for a really long time, which isn't to say that there will never be a solution to it, but just that um, (laughs) you read like the op-eds and you hear the pundits talk about like, this is the solution nothing is ever as simple as what somebody can fit into an op-ed or into a soundbite. You know, it's, it's always so much more layered and complex. And I think to bring it back to what we're talking about, that's sort of the beauty of academia is that it can be a little ivory tower. It can be a little bit head up your butt, but (laughs) the point is, is that, um, especially in literature review or especially like in a thesis, a lot of the work of the writing is talking about what has come before. This is the the lineage of this area of research and you have to quote it and you have to critically analyze it. And it's a really tough exercise. And sometimes it feels like a lot of throat clearing to get to your point, but it's so important to do that work. And that's something that we as a society have not done to understand how we've gotten here. Well, exactly. And, and, and if I could if I could modify that a little bit or, or add to that by saying that I think what we I think what you and I are experiencing is um, you know there's a there's a there's an interesting phenomenon that occurs with people that I see in myself and with other people over and over again, which is you learn a thing, you're now aware of something you weren't aware of before. Oh, there's a there's a traffic light there. Oh, I didn't know that was a traffic light. And now I know it's a traffic light and it's there and that's its purpose. I don't know, maybe you're five or whatever, you know, and you're like, oh, wow, they're all over the place. Look at all these traffic. I didn't even notice these things. What the hell are all these things doing here? You know, or or so suddenly you notice it everywhere where you didn't ever notice it before and you can't shut up about it because you're so fascinated by this new thing you've learned. Or (laughs) I love that we're comparing ourselves to five-year-olds right now. I, well, I'm just saying, right? I mean, I, totally. I mean, I totally am. And this is what excites me about learning, right? Is I get to experience this. Uh, or you learn about this new thing. You didn't know about it before. You're suddenly hyper aware of it and you want everybody else to know about it. And you think because you didn't know about it up until now, you kind of assume nobody else did either. 
Mm-hmm. And the fact is, of course, like with critical thinking, now there's a ton of people have been working on this stuff for a really long time. And now it's you're kind of welcome to the movement. Welcome to the to mm-hmm. this part of the world that you didn't know about before. And this could be anything. You could do this with bowling. You could do this with knitting. You know, oh, look at all these knitting circles in my neighborhood I didn't even know about before because I wasn't even paying attention to them. Right. So learning is a lot of fun for raising awareness and 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 seeing where things are at. Um but I always um, have to temper that with, okay, now keep perspective. Keep perspective, right? Because um, the world is a big, complicated place, you know, and you start, and, and then you have to, and the thing I think that, that the learning helps you with is to contextualize mm. the data. Where is it applicable and where is it not? Because in a totalist world, like you and I used to live in, there was one thing that mattered, and it mattered to everybody and everything in every possible way. And if they weren't part of that or, or getting on board with that, they were wrong. And it was a real simple world outlook, real mm-hmm. easy, real black and white. And, 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 and the, uh, the thing about academia or about learning is it's the, it's the exact opposite of that. And that's where I tend to, it, it destroys my biases. It destroys all my partisanship. It, it breaks it all mm-hmm. down. And it makes me realize that, you know, when you have to, like you were saying with uh, reading um, Eileen Barker, who is, you know, yeah, definitely somebody that is on my, you know, shit list. Um, same with Gordon Melton. Here's a guy who's been a hardcore Scientology apologist and advocate in academia, in the academic world. For decades, the guy has just been a total shill. And I have to engage with his work because I got a quote from it. I got to cite it in my work. He's one of the only people who has written about, you know, some specific things in Scientology, the RPF. So I have to talk about him, which means I have to read his stuff. And guess Mm -hmm. what? His stuff is shit, but I still have to engage with it. I can't just go, oh, it's shit. You know, and and (laughs) just, you know, I, and because you have to go through that process, if you, if you invest in it, if you, if you really kind of go, okay, what am I, you know, let's learn something from this. Let's make this something positive. You walk away with a, I don't know, I walk away feeling, um, even in Gordon Melton's work, I can acknowledge certain truths. I can go, oh, well, he got that right. Oh, yeah. oh he got yeah. that right. He got that right. And, and, and it forces you to engage with the rightness and the wrongness of your opposing side or the people on your shit list or whatever. And that's a level of understanding that you don't get when you're in the partisan bubble, you know, world of they're wrong and I don't have to listen to anything they ever have to say about anything. And I'm right. And everything I do is right. And everything I think is right. I mean, when you're in that space, it's it's you're you're it's awful. It's awful. Life sucks when you're in that headspace. The irony is what you're talking talking about right now again sort of like the cult wars sort of thing is like it is a very totalist kind of situation <laughs> where there are camps there are people yeah. in both camps um who who very much have the perspective that like they're right the other person is wrong um and i in in my research proposal i was quoting pieces of that from both sides too and it is really hard because um 
it creates cognitive dissonance, which is super uncomfortable, as we know. And you have to hold space for it. You have no, it, it is true though. You have to hold space for there being truth to what both people are saying, even if it's not all true what they're saying. It's not all true what they're saying. You sort of have to become this magpie and collect these various pieces to to build up your own perspective, your own worldview, uh, to move forward with it. And because again, those old neural pathways are carved so deeply in some of us, it is really tempting to want to go to one side or the other. And I do tend towards the anti-cult side um, in the cult wars. Um, but you know, I, I showed you one of my NRM books and there's another one that I'm reading called perfect child, which is done by an NRM scholar who I think was like, her work was overseen by Dr. Arlene Eileen Barker and there was stuff in it. <laughs> there was something that I quoted in my, there were a number of things that I quoted in that paper. One of which was like, are children who are born and raised in cults brainwashed or are they just socialized? And I was like, what? <laughs> uh, you guys. Um, right. And I was like, oh, that's a sentence that covers up, uh, you know, a manifold abuses there. And at the same time, I can totally understand where that perspective comes from because when you take this idea of brainwashing which is like the crux of the cult wars did people get brainwashed did they not is it even a thing can it happen um children who are raised in an environment do not have a preconceived notion of a world to brainwash them into they are indeed socialized however if we take the word brainwashing and substitute thought reform, right? Yep. And not necessarily thought reform as a verb, but the concept of thought reform as a culture, right? Or like Biderman's um, chart of coercion. Right. If that is a culture, which I think in Scientology it is when the Unification Church, they both are. Well, you may not say that these children are brainwashed, but you'd be like, oh, well, these are some pretty abusive environments within which to socialize a child. And therefore, the fact that this NRM scholar is not exploring that level of this particular experience means that they're not getting a full picture, you know, but they're still presenting accurate data, which is really interesting, but it's surface level accurate. It's not the next level of what does that mean you know exactly and 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 i'll tell you i mean just to analyze what you've what you said there is um or what she said rather this 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 are they being brainwashed or are they being socialized it's a false dilemma it is that's it's, true it's yes. actually the the, uh, the question itself betrays a logical fallacy a fallacious way of thinking about the entire subject in the first place because mm -hmm. it's not an either or. Right. Socialist brainwashing is a socialization process taken to a level of totalist thinking. Mm -hmm. It's not either or, it's both. It's just mm -hmm. if you approach it from an either or, that itself betrays a bias that is going to throw your entire paper off. And that and that's the kind of thing where I don't have to just go, oh, fuck Eileen Barker. I just go, no, it's bad thinking. Let's mm -hmm. engage with that, right? And Because and, I was actually, about a month or two ago, I was like, okay, I'm going to war with these guys. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get into these cult wars. I'm going to start writing papers. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to engage with these guys. And then, after I calmed down a little bit, I started thinking, wait a second. You know how I can do this even better? 
You know how I could actually like move the ball down the road in the cult wars without having to get into the tit for tat paper versus paper response papers and all this other nonsense, just like YouTube videos, you do a YouTube video, and then there's some asshole doing a response video somewhere. And then you got to respond to that. I have never let myself get into any of that drama. I don't go there. I don't do response videos, right? Um, so then I started thinking about that with this. And I thought, you know how I really beat these guys is I just do better work. I do better research. I do I do mm. papers and I do work that doesn't engage with that crap. I don't have to respond to bad argumentation and bad scholarship. I just do better scholarship and better research. Mm. And I present those findings and I get a broader consensus amongst people who are willing to listen, not a small group of mm. people who are ideologically motivated to, you know, engage in logically fallacious thinking and argumentation. So that's mm -hmm. that was where I realized I need to do. And so now I'm kind of hyped about, you know, just writing and researching more with this degree as I move forward, you know, is what I want to do yeah. with that. So so that's, yeah. that's I mean, the I kind of nuanced thinking that academia gives you, whereas if you're just okay. stuck in the war of it, you know, which is where our media tends to live and the just the surface conflict of it, there's so much you lose. There's so much, mm -hmm. you know, that, you, that, that for yourself, there's so many levels of understanding and, 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 and things you could actually really do with yourself as a result of that understanding mm -hmm. that we lose. And that, that's what I'm appreciating about this experience, even despite all the fucking bullshit we have to go through to get it. You know? <laughs> and I say that bullshit yeah. as though it's unique to this program. I'm just talking about the academic experience as a whole. I'm not, I am not, you know, uh, singling out this program as, as some kind of a, a, a torture fest, because it's 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 academia that's the torture fest. <laughs> I and actually, I have to say, you know, as compared to what my expectations are, and also what I experienced doing a four year degree, I find that this environment is incredibly supportive. The the professors and mm. the uh, research supervisors that I've I've engaged with, for the most part are incredibly understanding people. Many of them are survivors themselves. Right. And so it's, um, it's super helpful to be able to say like, Hey, I'm, I'm struggling with this. And for like the most part they're they are, uh, well aware enough of the literature out there on people like us, for example, <laughs> to be like, <laughs> it totally makes sense that she's struggling with this, you yep, know? Um, yep. and there's not a lot of judgment. There's a lot of support. So I, I do appreciate that. Um, I think one of the things that, and, and I don't know if this is like a compulsive thing or an ex-cult kid thing or or what, but like I turned in my research proposal two days ago and already I'm like, oh man, I should have mentioned this or like <laughs> to the point that you made about like, well, that's a logical fallacy. I'm thinking of another quote from that same book that I was talking about that I pointed out as a logical fallacy in my paper, but I didn't like go into it enough. And I'm like, oh man, I really... I was up against a word count, you know, and so I, I couldn't, but, um, the, the <laughs> they're in the unification church, maybe in Scientology too, because there's that whole like going clear over the bridge thing. There's the drive to perfection, right? Yeah. That is what your life is all about. And so saying I've turned this in, 
it's as good as I was able to make it within the time frame with my resources, et cetera. That's a really, really hard thing to do yeah. because I continue to put pressure on myself to be like, but it wasn't perfect, you know? And because we're like always evolving and always learning, there's no such thing as perfection, but it's still something that's like tweaking my mind. Cause I've got like my draft sitting here. That's all marked up. And so it's like yelling at me, like you forgot this. And, um, and, and I, maybe, maybe that is also part of the academic journey as well. You know, maybe that's how people keep publishing because they just keep having new ideas and there's like new depth <laughs> that you think of, um, which is actually a beautiful thing, but it's something that, again, my training from growing up in a cult, actually I can torture myself over yeah. that. I didn't get it perfect. And I didn't say all the things that needed to be said at the outset. So. Oh, so hear you. I so hear you. I, <laughs> I, I was torturing myself over, over the fact it wasn't, you know, publication quality or whatever. And, and, and frankly, by the time I pounded out the first 5,000 words on that first essay, I was just frank, you know, glad to have it be done. I was like, oh God, okay, I got it done here. Have some, here's some words, take them. And I, and I thought, you know, yes. I, I thought I had just written complete shit and I, and it's posted on my website people can take a look. It's not complete shit, but it's, it was just, it was a first assignment. It was my first go around it, my first college paper. And so I, you know, my, mm -hmm. my, my wife and my friends were like, dude, you really need to chill out. It's, it's, it's all good. It's, it's all, it's all fine. You're going to be fine and everything's going to be fine. And once I got my grade back and I was like, oh, oh, that's how this works. So it, like, it, like it just, it, it, there's a process to it. The second trimester was even more stress relief. And so by the time I got to this third trimester where it's just the thesis, um, I was prepping beforehand. Mm -hmm. I did my research in a very methodical way. I wasn't under the gun. I wasn't waiting until the last second. I, you know, I was able mm -hmm. to kind of let the process go through a lot more smoothly. And I had a lot, lot, lot less stress about it until about two weeks ago, <laughs> you know, cause it's crunch yeah. time. And then, and then, you know, you, sure. the, the, the deadline starts approaching and you're like, Oh my God. But I don't know that that if for, for me, I've, I've tried to, uh, well, actually talking with you, talking with the advisors, talking with the other students and, and the environment of support. I have never, I did not expect and was very pleasantly surprised that there was support from every angle, every turn I went mm -hmm. to, whether it was another student, whether it was my professor, mm -hmm. whether it was a advisor, it was always supportive. And that really, that really shocked me because I was expecting a sink or swim approach. I really, I As honestly was, I. was, yeah, I really yeah. didn't think I was going to get the help I got and I, and I would not have made it through without that. So I, I very, very, very much appreciate, you know, the, the, the care that they've brought to that. But, um, I, I don't know how unusual that is in the big wide world of academia at this point. I just have my own experience with it, but it was, mm -hmm. um, it was good, but man, it really just broadens your mind, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I think one of the things that, um, I'm going to be struggling with through this process is that I'm dreading getting, my work back with feedback because it's, I know there's room for improvement, right? But there's old stuff in me that, again, it's that demand for purity, demand for perfection yes. we talk about with Lifton. Um, <laughs> if I didn't do something 100% right, 
then I'm a complete fuck up. I'm a failure and I deserve nothing. Right. Right. And so that's leftover totalist thinking for me. And so it's going to be a very interesting process to uh, get feedback, to digest it, to understand that like, if somebody's like, I don't think this is a strong argument. You could have done something better over here. It doesn't mean that I'm a bad person. It doesn't mean that I'm kicked out of the program, all of these things. Um, And like maybe non-cult people struggle with that too. And if so, like, I'd love to hear people's experiences around it. I just think that it's, it's so amplified in our minds because of how we, we were socialized and brainwashed, you know, Um, that, that, Everything that is not meeting somebody else's subjective standard of perfection means that we're a complete failure. That's right. that's something that um, has been an ongoing process for me. And because academia is relatively new in that regard, it's going to be interesting to see how I process it. Yeah, big time. I I, I so feel you. And I and all I'll say is. I look forward to hearing and seeing how you how that goes for you. Um, I, I right. can tell you that for me, it was I, I, I could have said the exact same words you just said a year ago, mm. and I would have been completely mm. justified in saying them. I mean, I was it was absolutely true. You know, we yeah. we I mean, I think about I think about my time in the Sea Org and I think about assignments I was given, which were, you know, frequent and um, and how the and how there were consequences if if you didn't pull it off, if you didn't make this go right, as they say in Scientology, make it go right, you know, then you were wrong. You were making it go wrong. I mean, it was one or the other. If you weren't making it go right, you were making it go wrong. Mm-hmm. So either way, it's your intention that's driving this thing, right? And that's the that's the the little barbed you know, spear that they stick in your heart every single time is it's all about whether, you know, it's what you want. If this is a bad outcome, Mm -hmm. it's because you wanted a bad outcome. And that's Mm -hmm. where you're like, oh, go fuck yourselves. You know, that's that's where we need to dump that crap because it's just so judgmental and 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 frankly, over time and with physical punishment added on top of that, which was done for both of us, I'm sure. Um. You get trauma on top oh, of yeah. that. You get trauma layering, yeah. right, on top of that. And, 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 you, and you can't just ignore that. You can't just walk away from that. You can't just go, oh, well, I'll just overcome that anyway. It doesn't work like that. So so there is that, too. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny, and I don't mean funny, haha. I mean funny, mm. fucked up, because what you're saying reminds me of in the church, in, our, in my church experience, we didn't have that same perspective necessarily like we we have uh, sayings like you know check your motivation and stuff which Mm -hmm. means like you know if you weren't like fully invested in something there would be a problem so like if you didn't if you weren't a thousand percent on board with something you were creating a foundation for satan to invade and satan to claim your offering there we go and um and and there was you know some like biblical bullshit behind that i think with like abraham's sacrifices he didn't cut the dove and then like you know god had to reject his sacrifice or whatever but um there was there was there's a, a a Mooney podcast for current second gen, and two young women leaders in it were talking about how they had done this project within the church, and church leaders quote didn't accept their offerings, and 
and like how they were crying and they were like judging themselves about it. And I'm just sitting here going, Oh my God, that's so fucked up. Because again, it's like this, this really totalist thing where like they worked really, really hard and they were just like absolutely outright rejected from it. And these people were literally playing God saying, I reject your offering. Right. And, and that is the paradigm in which so many of us were raised that, you know, I mean, for me, it was like, if I came home with a B plus, I was rejected as a child, you know, and, and all of these things sort of play into that totalist thinking that if, if for some reason, like you doubted, if for some reason your motivation was a little bit like, I want to do this for personal benefit, but also like, it's good for the church. There are so many factors in which somebody could point out your wrongness and there is no way to be a hundred percent right, or certainly a hundred percent right all of the time that it's just this minefield. And it's, it's so easy to get traumatized in that. And so that is definitely one of the burdens that I know that I bring to everything that I do. And, and hopefully I've de-escalated it a little bit in myself because for example, I remember um, I'm an artist as well. And so I did this portfolio review back in like 2014 or 2015, and I got written feedback from a number of jurors. And I remember being curled up on the sofa sobbing (laughs) because the feedback like cut me to the quick. Right. And then a few years later, I revisited it because I was working on my portfolio again and trying to strengthen it. And I looked at the feedback and I was in no way upset by it. And in fact, I was like, but this was mostly positive. Why was I crying? It's because so, like one person said one mean thing, you yeah. know, like one person just didn't, didn't get on with what I was saying. Um, and so it's just, it's very, very interesting. I think that it's a, it's a learned thing for us to self-validate a little bit. And when we're in a new environment like this, it's, it's very, very vulnerable. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just like, I'm in that vulnerable space again, and I'm just sort of acknowledging it, that it's, it's interesting. And I know that everybody goes through this to some degree, you know, we all want validation. Um, but again, I'm just pointing out the extreme of it in this case, big time. So big time. I, uh, I, I'm sitting here wondering right now, I was thinking to myself, you know, years of YouTube comments should have, you know, thickened my skin a bit and did, but somehow in an academic environment, all that, all that's not really applicable. You know, it's not the same kind of, it's again, context is always King. You can be, you can be a ferocious lion in one area of your life, fearless, fucking, you know, determined, you know, dauntless, defiant, resolute, as they say in Scientology, uh, you know, uh, but then another area of your life, you're just a little, you're just a little mouse, you know, you just like, ah, you know, this, this splinter, it hurts, you know, uh, it, you just, you, whatever. Right. So you, so it really is funny uh, how one thing doesn't necessarily prep you for another. It doesn't really work that way. You want it to, you think it should, but it, it doesn't. I was on pins and needles. I mean, I was like, ah, what are my, what's the feedback going to be? What are my grades going to, ah! Oh, I was just, ah, oh, freaking out, man. Freaking out. Yep. Uh, now, yep. now I'm, now I'm okay. Like, I, like I'm not concerned now that the thesis I'm writing won't get approved or passed. It's, I want to do the best possible job I can on it. Cause mm-hmm. I know people are actually kind of interested in it. 
And so, so actually it's more to, I don't want to, I don't, it's not pass or fail that I'm freaking out about now. Like I was in the first term, it's, I want to create the best possible argument and impression for people with this paper that I'm doing. So that's, so it's a bit of a different, mm -hmm. the, 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 the goalposts have moved, but they've moved in a positive way, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and, um, and I, I, yeah, I guess that's just a result of the learning and the, and gaining a little bit of self confidence. But I, I've still got you know all kinds of self confidence issues. There. <laughs> I mean, just because that's my goal doesn't mean I think I'm pulling it off. You know what I mean? I am still freaking out about whether this thing is going to pass or not. I, I don't want to. I don't want to be like, oh, it's it's all so good. I ah, it's all it's not not quite that <laughs> confident, but. You know, it's just saying the, 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 the focus of my stress, I guess I could say, you know, mm -hmm. about that. But yeah, uh, where do you think I, I'm curious now that you've gotten this far, though, I, I wanted I wanted to I wanted to ask you this. So now that you've got the first term, the, the first trimester done, how are you looking at things differently in terms of what you think you might do with this or where this might take you mm -hmm. or what? What you know? How, how have things changed at all in the last couple of months as far as how you're focusing or thinking the future might go? I have no idea, to be perfectly honest. Um, and and I'm actually trying to embrace that uncertainty because uh, I don't do well with it, and I know that it opens up more opportunities to sort of be like, I don't know, and I'll see what happens. Um, I would like to be able to use the learning in a future career somehow. Uh, I know that it will probably come up in my art. It will probably come up in the writing that I do on my blog that has been sort of on pause since I started this program. But um, yeah, what it looks like in terms of how I show up in the world at large, I don't know the answer to that right now. Um, and I, yeah, it's like, I, I could say like, you know, maybe I'll work in a nonprofit or something. I really don't know. I don't know. Because there's this part of me that's like really interested in the idea of pursuing a PhD someday. But there's this other part of me that's like, academic scholarship is publish or die. And <laughs> do I want to be like churning stuff out all the time? I don't know. I really don't know. Um, but I do think that the perspectives of people like us, not just people who are going through academic programs, but um, people who've grown up in these environments, they're very important. And that's something that I've tried to amplify with my artwork, something that I've tried to sort of clarify with my previous writings. And so I think that that's something that no matter which direction I will go in, that will continue to be a guiding light for me. Um, because you know, as you and I were talking about pre-recording, like on Twitter or something, um, one of the hardest things for me in this cult wars context is that the apostate story is considered an atrocity tale by some people who believe that, you know, these are things that should not even be listened to. Yeah. And um, you had sent me an article kind of refuting that idea, um, but also quoting the the scholars that sort of originated this idea. I think it was Bromley and Shoup who, yep. who came up with that sort of idea. Um, and so I quoted both the, the, the refutation and then the original work in my research proposal. So thank you for sending oh, that to me. Oh, cool, yeah. Um, 
And it, it actually, it sort of forms the crux of some of the work that I want to do, at least within the program, because again, to your earlier point, brainwashing, you know, or whatever you want to call it, thought reform coercion is a socialization process. And when that is the, the socialization process that somebody has grown up within, um, it's really, really important to listen to those stories, to understand the needs of the cohort coming out of these groups so that services are available to help these people heal. Yep. And when there is so much prior scholarship talking about these atrocity tales should not be listened to, and here's why. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to be like an academic zealot, but I, I do want to be part of the support structure for people like me because to quote one of the NRM scholars that was talking about the SGA experience in the book, Perfect Children, she talks about how these groups evolve over time and that children who are born and raised in these groups, some of them will leave. And that the first cohort that leaves will always find that there is very little support for them in the outside world. And part of that is just um, a lack that our culture has, you know, nobody prepared for the thousands of SGAs that were going to be leaving the cults that, that sprang up in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, yeah. despite the fact that there were lots of warning signs from the anti-cult organizations. Um, so this scholar's point of view is that a lot of the support systems that come up from this first cohort leaving a group, the, the second gen cohort specifically, um, the support systems are developed by this first cohort and they are opposition groups. Yep. And therefore, all of the, the following cohorts that come out that seek support become aligned with these opposition groups. And therefore, because of that, they are shunned by the original group. Right. And I'm like, oh, that's a fallacy right there because a lot of us are shunned even prior to leaving, you know, we are um, abused in many regards because we dare to question the totalist thinking. And then once we separate from the group, whether we've developed any opposition structures or not, like we are definitely persona non grata to these people. Oftentimes we're dead and we lose everything, not dead literally, but we are dead to them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I read scholarship like that, I'm like, that's a fundamentally flawed academia right there. And it's it's creating more problems for people like us when we leave, because what it's doing is, is exactly supporting the sort of Bromley and Shoup uh, thesis that you can't trust anything that these first gen are saying because they've been deprogrammed and they've had access to anti-cult organizations that have shaped their narratives in a very specific way. Yep. Um, and so it's... I, I don't want second, third, you know, multi-gen kids coming out of these groups to feel like they have to carry the burden of that academic perspective. Uh, and, and maybe most people are, are completely unaware of the academic perspective, and that's right. awesome. But it does inform court proceedings. It informs the kinds of social services that are available, the kind of, you know, government funding for things. And I, and I, I guess that I've, I've answered your question without really having a structure for like what it looks like in the world. I'm just, I'm very passionate about belief survivors, you know, exactly. <laughs> because it's like, 
to me, it's like taking, you know, let's, let's talk about like domestic violence victims. If a woman escapes an abusive marriage and goes to a shelter, are you going to say you cannot believe that woman's story because now she's been exposed to people within the community shelter organizations who have a specific agenda, who are then going to teach her to shape her narrative around their agenda? I think if we heard that, we would be like, what the actual fuck are you talking about? These services are super important. But somehow that's the narrative that has come out of the cult wars. And it's it's like, you know, if you read Evan Stark and he talks about how um, the shelter movement, though problematic, it sprang up in the 70s and our awareness of domestic violence as an issue um, was really perpetuated by a lot of these volunteer organizations in the 1970s. And we don't have perfect systems and there's a lot of problems. And the services that are available through government and the ways in which law enforcement treats these survivors is still horrific, but you look at the progress that has been made and at least there's progress. There is so little similar progress being made for survivors of cultic coercive control. Yeah. And so, so yeah, I guess, I guess that's where I get really impassioned is that, um, I, in our program, we talk about the similarities and the parallels between domestic violence and cultic coercive control. Um, there are a lot of the same tools used, and we're still horrible to domestic violence survivors, but we've developed a better understanding and we've developed more um, services to support them. And there's been so little done for this other cohort over here, the, the cultic cohort. And so I want to bring awareness to that. And I want to bring some support structures to that as well. Yep. And uh, and I, I guess, you know, I just go back to being angry. <laughs> Somebody would be like, you know, the support services that are available, which are like a support group and a blog for ex-second gen Moonies, like those are just part of the opposition. And when kids become aligned with that, that's when their parents are going to shun them. That is an absolute misunderstanding of the situation and the chronology of what happens for people when they leave these groups. Um, right. But if those are the voices being heard, then that creates a really, really big problem for survivors on so many different levels in ways that they may not even be aware of, but it affects them you know exactly so, uh, that's that's my soapbox <laughs> what i do with my soapbox i don't know i might just be a ranting person on the internet after this program but there you go well awesome well thank you for sharing that because i was curious where your thoughts were going with all that and you're of course i i am tracking completely with what you're talking about there i've been a, i've had all the same thoughts and for all the same reasons. I mean, it is, it is bad thinking. There's logical fallacies aplenty a, a in there. The problem is that, you know, like Scientology treats psychiatry, where, you know, ECT or, or drugs or other activities have occurred in the past in the, in the world of psychiatry that were abusive and were awful. Mm -hmm. But to That's think okay. that all of psychiatry is embodied by that and that's all it has to offer and that's all there is to it mm -hmm. is insane that's 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 so not reality that it's mm -hmm. actually an insane version of reality because it, it's so wrong 
And that's the, exactly what Brian Wilson and, and um, Bromberg and, and these other guys did, is they perpetuated that level of wrong reality on mm -hmm. sociology and on religious studies in those two fields. It's and and so some of the reading that I've done uh, is actually done by psychiatrists and psychologists who so Mark Gallanter, I think is how you pronounce his name. I think I read four or five studies of his done between 1979 and like 1984. They were done on the Moonies specifically with cult cooperation, and it was all qualitative data, mm -hmm. no quantitative data, excuse me. My brain's a little fried after having gotten, you know, through the, through the term. Um, so, so, so it was numbers-based. You know, it was numbers-based. All numbers-based. Yeah. Numbers-based. You know, people were taking these surveys, and the surveys were developed based on a number of different approved models. Some of them were experimental models, but the point is, his thesis was that cult involvement with the Unification Church specifically actually helped lower neurotic stress for converts. So this is actually a healthy affiliation for these people. And that, you know, the fact that they were like subjected to what I consider labor trafficking, not really a problem. You know, the right. fact that they were married to people that they didn't know didn't seem to affect them. Therefore, ergo, you know, the, the data is here. This is not a harmful organization. Well, of course, all of my margin notes are like, well, you're not really taking into account the fact that these people have been socialized to speak about their former lives in ways that like this was the atrocious before time. And now I'm so much happier because I'm in the cult, you know, and so like these things weren't taken into consideration in the data. And so it's, I guess all of this is to say that it's not just a problem in sociology. It's a problem in, in many different spheres. Um, and so it's, uh, I think your point was more like these organizations, the Unification Church and Scientology, they demonize psychology and they demonize psychiatry, probably because these are avenues for people to actually get real help. And so if you demonize avenues of healthy exit for people, it's easier to control them. But my my point that I was sort of extrapolating on is like, yeah, it's there. There's so much, there's so much shit that these poor survivors have to deal with in terms of like the culture that they're coming out of, which biases them against getting the help that they need. And then there's the academics that are also creating these biases to exactly. make it so that there's less help available. If that makes sense. Well, well, that's exactly the point. Yeah. And and let me let me reiterate something just to make sure I've made my point clear about the psychiatry thing because what I was trying to do was draw an analogy of the bad logic of it, the mm -hmm. bad argumentation mm -hmm. of it. Uh, Brian R. Wilson um, and these other guys, right? I mean, I I, I keep going to Wilson because that's where it started with the whole anti the, the sectarian studies and sociology thing he was the thought leader mm -hmm. that bromley and shoop and everybody else followed along with uh, and and contributed to and created their own ideas on it it's not all just that w this is all wilson's brainchild i'm just saying that's where that's where this whole thing starts and they have villainized the entire anti-cult industry just like Scientology has villainized all mm. of psychiatry. It's it's black mm. and white thinking writ large. Yeah. 
And that's, yeah. again, the logical fallacy at the base of the whole thing is you can look at these arguments and you go, no, this argument's wrong because the entire mm. basis on which it's based is a generalization. You're saying, Mr. Wilson, Mr. Shoot, Mr. Bromley, and all you other guys, you're saying every ex-member has a uniform experience of being brainwashed after they leave their cult, and that's why they speak out against it, is because the anti-cult guys got hold of them, and you're saying that we can't listen to any of them because all of them have been tainted by this corruption of this anti-cult intervention industry, which has sprung up, you know, to kidnap people. And this was all back in the goddamn 80s. This isn't even relevant now. Nobody does that anymore. It hasn't for 30 years. Mm -hmm. But these guys won't get, won't shut up about it. And, and I was paralleling that with the same way that Scientology yes. won't shut up about psychiatry. And they're both completely wrong about, you know, the, the substance of the argument is actually in error because it's a broad generality as an argument. Yeah. There are two things that I, I thought of as you were saying that. One is that I, I do want to just say I have talked to... Um, various thought leaders in the anti-cult movement who are similarly totalistic in their thinking and think that the NRM scholars have nothing to contribute. And yes. I, I do not agree with that. Me so too. there is that. Me too. Um, and um, what you just pointed out about the, uh, spe specifically, you know, Wilson, Bromley, Shoup, um, Basically, what they were asserting, which I find hilarious in a really dark kind of way, is that anti-cult organizations, deprogrammers, brainwash people. <laughs> <laughs> they yes. brainwash people, and that's how you're getting these atrocity tales. In fact, like I think in this is this is a draft of my research proposal that's still sitting here that hasn't gone in the garbage yet. And I think I quoted something around it because I was talking about that that specific problem and and now I can't find it because of course all the words blur <laughs> now like on the spot oh no I found it I oh. found it look at this Bromley and Shoup acknowledge their opposition to deprogramming partially influenced their conclusion they say Coercive deprogramming was marked by ab abducting and detaining members of cults against their will, haranguing them for extended periods of time under emotionally charged conditions, and then achieving in such individuals rapid redefinitions of their former religious experiences and beliefs that culminated in their apostasy. And so my, my immediate reaction to this was like, that sounds exactly like what Lifton is talking about in thought reform, right? And so I say their description sounds, or aspects of their description sounds eerily like those of brainwashing that first generation leavers describe regarding their initial conversion experiences in groups like the Unification Church. And so it's so funny to me that without using the word brainwashing, they are using the argument that they refute to sustain their argument. It just, it like, it blew my mind. <laughs> it didn't, isn't it amazing? Um, isn't it absolutely yeah. mind blowing? Yeah. And then there's, um, there's another person. Um, so the, this piece, and then in a, another piece, there's another scholar, um, who's cited in that larger sort of refutation of, of 
Bromley and Shoup and, and all of these NRM scholars. So it was Kent and Swanson in 2017 that put together the paper that you sent me that's talking about like, this is why you should actually believe survivors. Um, so one of the scholars that they say is, is um, isn't it strange that Bromley and Shoup and this, this cohort over here say you can't believe ex-members, but current members they are totally valid sources of information. It it's like it I, I know blows my mind, isn't it? it it's it, you, you. I mean, I I don't know if I'm going bald because I'm just getting old, or if just because I've been like. <laughs> I mean, it's just you know I'm not going bald quite yet, but you know I my my, my anyway. Yeah, it's driving me. It's it literally is driving me mad. I'm trying to read these guys and walk through like 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 breaking down their arguments, which is which is how you need to read academic work. You can't read it the same way you read opinion pieces. Uh, it, it's so it's such bad logic. It's such bad thinking, and 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 that's my problem with it. Is it's just such sloppy thinking. I mean, you wouldn't. I, I, you know, I would hope that if I turned in a paper with such crappy thinking that I would get a bad grade for it, regardless of my position, just mm -hmm. the, just the, just the, the structure of the arguments and the, and the, the rigorousness of them is so bad because mm -hmm. you, because, because, okay, for example, we take Gordon Melton, who writes a paper uh, for Cessna on the RPF, the Rehabilitation Project Force which is Scientology's prison re-education camp, right? And it may or may not exist at this point, but up until about a year ago, it absolutely did. So what do you, what you know, so you're going to break this down, you're going to talk about this. Okay, well, we can talk at length about it. I did the program. I know everything about it. So I read a paper by Melton where he goes on a roll. He spends 30 pages breaking down how it's just like a Catholic monastery and in the same tradition of monastic orders and ordered communities that exist across the spectrum of religion in this, in this great big wide world that we live in. And mm -hmm. fair enough, there are ordered communities and monast monastic existences that people go voluntarily engage in and, and do things that you and I would agree or would think, wow, that's a bit rough. That's a bit abusive. I don't know that I'd put up with that. But they mm -hmm. go into it with informed consent. They understand exactly right. what they're getting into. And they are actively, in many cases, actively discouraged from becoming part of it unless they are actually committed to the cause. In other words, they're not being actively proselytized and recruited into it. They're being mm -hmm. discouraged from doing it, like in a Catholic monastery, for example. They, they have some gates you've got to walk through before they're going to accept you. Not mm -hmm. so in the RPF. But he draws this, this really lame comparison between these two things as his main argument, mm -hmm. which all falls apart the second Stephen Kent refutes his paper with, really? So would you like to tell me about the 13-year-olds that are, that are imprisoned in Catholic monasteries around the world? Because mm -hmm. I've never met one. And yet in the RPF, we've got 13 and 14-year-olds. And would you like to tell me even more about how those 12, 13, and 14-year-olds are either committing suicide, trying to commit suicide to get out of that condition— because they can't get anybody to listen to them otherwise. Or would you like to tell me about 
how it is that those 12, 13, and 14-year-olds should be sitting in chair listening to the sexual transgressions, the moral tra sexual transgressions of grown adults, right, who get to, you know, tell them all about their sins and in, in security checking, because that's also something that you do on the RPF for five hours a day is you security check, you, you give confessionals to one another, Scientology style, which means you use the e-meter and you ask sharp and pointed questions that are very direct and very to the point, like, have you ever... Um, you know, masturbated with something you shouldn't have. Is there something sexual? You know, have you have you gotten up to something sexual in the last 24 hours that you're not telling me? You know, these kind of- What like, an interesting of, question. Have you masturbated with something that you shouldn't have? Are there things that you should and things that you shouldn't? Yeah, well, I, I mean, that's, that's it's, it's those kind of open-ended questions that, that, that fire off all kinds of, you know, moral quandaries for people and get that meter to yeah. respond, right? So you have sure. fodder to pull. Point being, nobody in any ordered community anywhere in the world is subjecting 12-year-olds to sexual, you know, the sexual proclivities of grown adults, except in this world of Scientology, right? Uh, well, I mean, in, in or the other Catholic culty. Church, obviously, there's the sexual abuse of children, which is a separate problem. You're talking about like an institutionalized program. Yes. And the Catholic Church definitely has a problem with institutionalized and protected sexual abuse of children and i think that the danger is in conflating the two of them yeah you know which is not oh what, yeah um, no i i need to be clear what you're doing but no it's not yeah. and in fact let's be super clear that there is not one thing you can find in catholic dogma that justifies what they're doing to those little kids Right, you right. can find that in Scientology. That's what I'm saying is it's dogmatic. Yes, yeah. It's it's right. actually a core. It, you, when you're doing Scientology properly and standardly, then you have 12 year olds doing that. Right. right. When you're doing Catholicism, when you corrupt Catholicism and turn it into something that it's not and never was supposed to be. That's when you get the pedophilia that goes on there. So it's so. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm drawing very huge. Yes difference there right and yeah, i'm more and i just married, wanted to point that out yeah of course of course and thank you for doing so but i i'm trying to point out that with melton here here's a 30 page paper which completely ignores every single problematic aspect of the rpf because he's got an agenda and that agenda is very clear it is, mm -hmm. this is normal, this is perfectly fine, and I am more than happy to go into any court of law and testify to that fact so that Scientology will keep paying me and I can keep getting along in the world. And that's the kind of nonsense that we're dealing with. So I can go, you know, I can look to the individual scholars and their personal issues, but I can also point to the fact that their work is just shit. And I, I can point out why it's shit. And... That's, I think, a better way of um, that's what academia is giving me is that is that yeah. avenue of attack where it's not just a personal level of, well, I just don't like that guy. I, I just don't mm -hmm. think that's a very credible attack on somebody's work. Right. Is I just don't like the guy. But if you can actually point out, no, this guy's work is shit. And here's why. Then you've got, you know, a much better base i guess yeah and i and i think that um all of that is so even getting to the point where you're like well i don't even like that guy is, is an important step out of 
um, where we come from because yeah. uh, to sort of circle back to like our Dr. Oz's and Dr. Phil's and whatnot. Um, I think that many of us who exit these organizations because there's um, some sort of, again, letters after their name, there's authority given to these people. It's very easy for us to shut down our intuition about things and say, oh, well, they're saying this, therefore I, I can't stand up to that because I don't have the credibility. I don't have the education. I just have like my feeling about this thing that right. doesn't feel wrong or it doesn't sync with my experience. And, and I think we talked about this before on a previous podcast too, but what happens is, is that um, when, when we're still in that sort of nebulous stage of developing our critical thinking as we're healing, um, those perspectives of those scholars that are refuting our experiences, it's part of the gaslighting and the bypassing that we experienced. You know, like when I first started sharing my art and my story years ago, there were people second gen who are still in the church who would comment on it and be like, well, that wasn't my experience. And their intention was to shut me down and to say that I was wrong, yep. you know, and to say that, again, like this is just an atrocity tale kind of thing. Yep. Some of those people I remember who did that have since left the organization, which is funny. Um, but it, that is a tactic that's used you know, against us by people who are still in the organization. And so it's very, very difficult when you have your culture of origin, if you will, uh, teaming up with experts in the field to say that your experience is wrong. You know, it's, it's just, it's so re-traumatizing. And, and I think that it can get to a point where people don't feel like they can trust their own experiences. And that's, that's what I was feeling as you were talking about the way that RPF is being described. Yeah. You know, somebody who comes out of that experience who hasn't had the opportunity to like really deconstruct their own narrative and then rebuild it and understand it might read a paper like that or hear an opinion informed by that or, you know, read a court case about some outcome related to that and then feel like they can't trust their own belief about what happened to them and that's to me such a tragedy big time could not agree more it's it's uh i don't and i you know i the the the, the horrible thing the horrible thing about this had a long talk with a friend about publisher parish and the and the fact of that and how that works how it actually works like how the rubber meets the road in the institution when you're working there and it was a very interesting conversation, but it also helped me understand the motivation behind some of these papers, right? I mean, some of these NRM scholars are zealots. Some of them are do have a personal agenda. And I've talked about that, right? But some of them are just, I just need to get a paper out. And this is an easy thing to write about. And I can, you know, whip something up. And, and it's, a, it's so niche, you know, Scientology and academia, cults and academia is so niche compared to much, much broader topics that get written about much more extensively. Nobody's, you know, making their name <laughs> to write about cults. Well, there's like uh, one or two people. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, but it really, it, it should be a bigger topic because the fact of the matter is that as we have learned with coercive control, this is a huge domain. 
to to discuss. And there is a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done. So so it's not because it's an unimportant subject. It simply happens to be that the way it's been dealt with has been pretty niche. So mm-hmm. so some people who are writing about this are just you know they're just cranking out stuff just to crank stuff out because it satisfies their their tenure requirements and. And, and recognizing that was, again, a level of nuance because it's like, oh, well, okay, so it's not us versus them, black and white. It's, it's another level of, oh, well, some of these guys are just assholes. Okay, got it. And we can just move well, on and, from that. And you know? there's also like problematic structures within institutions then oh, yeah. that are creating and perpetuating an issue yeah. that has very little to do with what we're really talking about, you know? Um, I think that's always so interesting when you start to learn about the the cogs and wheels of various industries, you know? And yes. Like, oh, that's how the sausage gets made. Well, that's a little icky, you know? Yeah, exactly. uh, but I think it's, it's actually quite important, you know? Um, for me, learning about the art world helped me to depersonalize some of the feedback that I got, for example, um, you know, and, and as somebody who has done personal writing and tried to pitch it in various places, um, learning how the publishing industry works. I was like, oh, okay, that's very interesting, you know, um, and it, it helps you kind of take the sting out of various rejections and whatnot. So that's right. This is very interesting to learn about academia. Oh, uh, isn't it? Isn't it? And, and let me throw one more thing out and then maybe we'll move toward wrapping up. But I wanted to bring this up mm-hmm. as a counterpoint and something I've been thinking about with the NRM scholars and the, and the, the, um, uh, this, this us versus them, this cult wars thing that's been going on and all that, the outlet that you and I and others have found or have had has been social media and mainstream media because academia doesn't take us seriously. And Mm. I have found that to be kind of interesting. Just, I thought I'd just sort of throw this juxtaposition out there for a second because, Mm -hmm. because main, because here's the problem with this is (laughs) mainstream media is reductive, but Receptive. (laughs) That's exactly it, is they are reductive. They want the soundbite. They need the click. They need the, it's all about selling ads. And so, in a way, has not the very position that they've taken in sociology and religious studies, or in the, we'll say the new religious movement scholarship, is the position that they've taken that it's nothing but atrocity tales not in a way a self-fulfilling prophecy mm. because they mm. won't listen to anything else because mm. the only place I'm... we can go get our story out is if we basically tell an atrocity tale because that's what gets clicks and sells things right now Mm -hmm. i've taken my channel and i've gone much deeper than that but it started with here are the five reasons why scientology is going to implode right five or six reasons right and here's the and here's the video of it and here's all the horrible abusive things they're doing to people and how it's built Mm -hmm. into their dna to do this they can't help but do this and they're going to keep doing this until they implode and that was basically my argument and I had to talk about all the abusive crap and all the like very sensational, salacious stuff 
And that's mm-hmm. what fills interviews and that's what fills news stories and that's what fills the media. That's Scientology in the aftermath. That's, you know, going clear. It's all this like really atrocious stuff. There are sure. way deeper levels we could talk about this stuff, but not in mainstream media. They don't have the attention span or the or the the substance, the rigor for that. And so we don't get to have those conversations, those substantive rigorous conversations that's what podcasts are for (laughs) but again it becomes mainstream substitute for what academia should be Mm -hmm. stepping in getting all the details of all sides of this publishing extensively about the entire problem both ends Mm -hmm. of it how one end feeds the other how there is codependency here how there's all these levels to this but instead of doing that, they reject all of us and go, well, atrocity tales. It's all just atrocity tales, leaving us with only mainstream media to get any relief at all. So what do we tell? Atrocity yeah. tales. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's I've, I've had that experience um, because of the writing that I've done and some of the podcasts that I've, I've shared on, I've had producers reach out to me. I've had maybe four in the last six months or something. Mm -hmm. And, um, they, (laughs) one of them, uh, admitted that they're, they're basically just all, you know, what was the the phrase that he used? It was, it was not a pretty phrase to describe how they are. Mm. Um, something about like being carnivorous, you know, and like, they're just not out for blood, but they're all sort of scummy, you know, every, all the producers and everyone in entertainment is scummy, um, and admitted that, you know, they are looking for a very specific format. They're looking for the atrocity tale with the happy ending, right? Mm my tale does fit that very well. And yet I, I, when I'm interviewed, um, especially by these producers, I really try to bring in a lot of nuance and education so that I'm not just sitting there being, this is what happened to me. And it was so horrible. And, and I, I haven't gotten called back yet. (laughs) Probably because, um, I don't, I don't want to just, be that I don't want to just embody like I grew up in a cult I escaped and now my life is perfect because uh there there is so much nuance that gets missed there there are things about the cult not the cult specifically but about community that I experienced within the cult for example that like every now and then I miss you know I miss the culture that I grew up in not that it was good, but it's just like the way that I've described it before is that uh, I feel like I escaped sort of a Soviet bloc country and I can't go back behind the Iron Curtain. And it's it's comforting to speak my mother tongue with certain people, yes. you know, and and that's that's something that I haven't found the mainstream media to be really interested in. They, they may want like the good memories and then like the atrocity tales to try to tell the balanced picture, but I don't think that they're really looking for like, here's what it was really like, you know, like for me, if I watch a YouTube video of choir, 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 I cry because there is such an amazing sense of fellowship when you're singing with a bunch of people. I never want to sing a Mooney song again, ever, right? (laughs) But I remember that sense of fellowship when you're spending like an hour or something singing songs with people that you care about. 
there's something really beautiful about that. And so when I watch these videos of them singing songs of like Prince, you know, or David Bowie, I get really emotional because I, like, I want to be there, especially now that it's COVID and you can't do that. I'm right. like, oh, I want to do that in a in a context that's not abusive because it's so beautiful. Um, so I think that there's a lot of like really fundamentally beautiful human experiences that exist that the cults kind of co-opt that then your experience of it is cultic. And it's it's easy to miss those things, you know, and say like, oh, I, I really miss the beauty of fellowship with other human beings. It's not that I miss the cult. It's I, I miss the connection and I miss having a social group. It's a, a totally normal human thing. Um, and I feel like it's so dangerous to talk about stuff like that because the NRM side of it will take it and be like, see, see, it's just an atrocity tale that you're painting. And there was so much good stuff that you're leaving out. And then mostly the mainstream media wants the, the trauma porn. That's right. And, you know, it. there's a lot of it. There is a lot of it out there. And I think on some level, like, it is important for people to know that this exists. But the way that it's packaged and sold is, is really difficult for me. And I don't know if it was you or somebody else that I was talking to. It might have been Phil Drysdale, and I may have mentioned this to you before. Um, but our consumption of these stories, we have to be very careful of, I think. We have to look towards ethical consumption of them because... A friend of mine was interviewed by uh, one of the producers that I was interviewed by. They actually filmed a pilot for um, something that ended up falling through. And when this friend told me what he was subjected to in that interview process, I was horrified at how traumatizing it was. And so they purposely found somebody that they felt that they could manipulate, that they could trigger to get the emotions that they wanted, that they could... Um, that they could tell the story that they wanted. I have another friend that did uh, a, a documentary series and somebody that we both know walked off because the producer asked her, can you say that again? But can you cry when you say it? Right. You know, and, and so right. I, I just, I bring this up to, to highlight what you're saying that it's, it's a really uh, dark dichotomy that survivors are left with because when you go to the mainstream media and they want the atrocity tale, you can get manipulated. Um, not necessarily to tell a more horrible tale than what actually exists, but they are looking to amp it up, you know? And so it does kind of distort the perceptions again. And you are a packaged product being sold. Right. And and neither extreme is, is great for survivors. You know, um, very few of us feel like we really have control over our stories, that our narratives are no longer um, triggering for us. And, and so it's a very vulnerable position when you go to the mainstream media because you don't know what they're going to do with your story and, and you no longer have control over it too. You know, it's, it's like when we talk about the way that reality TV is edited for various perspectives and various um, like dramatizations of things, you don't know how you're going to come across. You don't have control over that final product. And so um, that's, that's part of, of why the dichotomy that you're talking about upsets me so much. I, and thank you for bringing all of that up because it's, uh, that's exactly what I was wondering. What are your thoughts on this entire topic? Because it is hugely uh, 
difficult for us. I mean, we, we are, you know, it's, it, it's, it's good to have, and I am thankful for outlets that will get the stories out there. However, as you just described, I'm not thankful for when they're trying to milk it for all the trauma and porn they can get out of it. It gets a bit much. And I've been in that hot seat. Um, you know, you have, your friends have, I mean, this is, uh, my friends have. So we, so there's a game here and I, and I, and I, I'm acknowledging, I'm openly acknowledging the fact that, you know, us, us, us trauma survivors, us, us survivors of coercive control have experienced abuse and trauma and we have lingering effects of that. And we're going to have lingering effects of that. And we want to tell the world about it because we don't want other people to have lingering effects of that or have to suffer it in the first place. Well, academia won't listen to you because, you know, you're just a, a, an idiot and mainstream media will listen to you, but only if you can turn the tears on and the anguish and the, and really demonstrate and, and put your trauma on display to the entire world which is understandable that you need to create an emotional impact so people will listen to you. I, I wish people were better, but they're not. People need an emotional impact in order to hear you in the first place. And so that matters. But doesn't it kind mm -hmm. of suck that you have to put trauma survivors in that position to be heard? Because the authorities and the people who actually have heads on their shoulders that could do more and do more seriously about this just won't even listen to you. And that's that's the sort of double bind that we're all sort of in a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 it's a strong thing to say that's a double bind, but it's, it's a difficult place to be. And I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to, to acknowledge that, you know? Yeah. You choose between being unheard or being the circus freak basically. And that's, uh, yeah. uh that's just a shitty set of choices. That is, that is what Dr. Yanya Lodge would call bounded choice. It is no choice at all. <laughs> Exactly. There we go. And there we go. So, you know, again, the learning helps inform us of these positions we're in. We get to go, oh, wow. Yeah, that's a whole new level of fuckery. But uh, but there it is. It's reality. And, and, and that's how you can start dealing with it. And at least when, you know, I'd rather know than not know. I'd rather, you know, uh, I'd rather know than not know. And I'd rather uh, live with a, you know, uh, a, a, an uncomfortable truth than a pleasing lie. I, I would. But, mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to complain about the uncomfortable truth. <laughs> it's uncomfortable, you know? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to point that out. Um, I guess we should start wrapping up. It's been almost two hours. We've had a lot of wonderful conversation here. I am always happy to have you on the show here. You, you bring uh, a, an informed and fascinating viewpoint to everything we've talked about so far. No, oh, thank you. I just feel like it's it's two students nerding out together. <laughs> it's always fun to chat with you. Um, and I, I feel like I learn a lot as I talk to you and I I feel um, validated for my own struggles with the, with school specifically. So it's, you know, it's nice. I feel like we're just having coffee and chatting. It's always wonderful. Exactly. And, and basically those are the podcasts I'm getting away with right now is because I'm just so into my work. I don't have the time to go off and research the, you know, church of God of England or whatever. And, and, and break down why they're abusive right now. I just, I just don't have the time to do that. So so these are the conversations you guys get right now. And I, and so far they seem to be going over well. So, uh, so there you go. So again, Jen, thank you very much for taking the time to, to contribute to my, my little show here. Of course. I'm always happy to talk with you. Thank you for having me.
Awesome. All right, folks. Uh, so we're going to wrap up here. So uh, I am sure, again, as we have promised many times, we will get to Jen's story. But we're just having so much goddamn fun having all these other discussions that we're just going to just keep having fun. So deal with we're it. We're going to kick that can down the road. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's what we're going to do. And uh, all that being said, thanks for tuning in, guys. I hope you've enjoyed this show. I hope you enjoy the channel. And if you do, consider supporting me through Patreon or PayPal. I love the love. And and, uh, and, of course, think that we are putting out good content here, so it deserves it. All right, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye.